All right, is everyone able to hear me? No. Oh, good, we're echoing. Fantastic. I know, I heard some. <laughs> Out of the electronics. All right. Are you guys still hearing echoing? Dude, this is an echo room too. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> there it goes. Hey, we're like a real church and everybody's seeing. <laughs> <laughs> what? We are not a real church. I said we're like a real church. Everybody's seeing. <laughs> 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 Oh, so he's coming to to me, and it won't be because. All right, so everyone's able to hear me online. Thumbs up. All right. They see us. Uh, they can see you okay. uh, right now. Uh, Toledo cannot see you guys, so make whatever faces you want at the folks in Toledo. <laughs> hey, that wasn't nice. All right. Um, so this morning, this is going to be the, the last week that we're kind of doing a little bit of a filler week and kind of doing some background or laying some groundwork for kind of the way that we're going to approach discipleship and reading the text and stuff like that. And then starting next week, we're actually going to begin in the beginning, Genesis 1, and we're going to be going through chunks of the Torah um, beginning next week. So. Uh, if you've been thinking about seeing someone else might want to be in, might be interested in joining us, that's a good week to start because we're going to be starting uh, at Genesis one next week. Um, actually, I think every week's a good week to ask someone, but maybe that's the most appropriate place for someone to fit in. So um, before I start today, I just want to kind of open the floor online here. If you guys have any questions about some of the things like we talked about the last week or the last couple weeks. Uh, and I just want to kind of give space for that uh, real quick if anyone has anything. And when I say real quick, it might just be real quick. So. <laughs> All right. So this morning what I want to talk about is why when we look, start in Genesis 1 next week, will we be passing everything through an ancient Jewish lens? So why is it important for us as Christians to be reading the Bible through a Jewish lens? Okay. Um, I think for me, the main reason that it is significant is that around the, around the third century, uh, we had, uh, Constantine and Constantine had a vision and he saw a cross and he saw a sword. And at this moment began to take a journey as a Christian, um, in some way or another. And, uh, and Christianity became the state religion, so to speak, and it became a political power. Obviously, people wanting to stay in good favor with Constantine, many people converted voluntarily without much conviction, and other people converted due to affliction. Um, and so that's a very important part of our history to realize, because much of our Christian history then 
uh, from that point forward was dominated by European male or Western male understanding of scripture. Okay, um, And that's a very significant switch from it being an ancient Jewish text. So within ancient Judaism, we have to imagine that it went from uh, a, a religion of oppressed people to the religion of the most powerful person in the world. Right? That's That was the transition that took place. I'm way oversimplifying. I'm not giving it nearly the amount of time or the energy that it deserves with the Constantinian uh, changeover. And I'd be happy to talk more, or if you have questions or want me to nuance something, I'd be happy to do that. But uh, for sake of brevity and not making this into a terribly boring history lesson, uh, that's a huge shift. The book was written to oppressed people who were currently, uh, the New Testament was written to a group of people that were currently uh, being occupied by Rome, and many of their people were crucified. Uh, right? I think sometimes, I think if we really pause and think about it, we know it's not to be true, but I think sometimes we imagine that Jesus and the two other people were the only two people crucified in Rome. Uh, and so we always picture the three crosses and we stop there. There would have been hundreds, if not thousands, of crosses everywhere in ancient Rome. Uh, they would have lined the streets to remind people that they were not truly free that they were not actually uh, a people that got to make decisions for themselves, uh, that they were under the thumb of Rome. Everyone with me so far? Okay. So when we take that and we have these letters and these writings, uh, particularly about Jesus when we talk about the Gospels, that were attacking the power structures that existed with Rome and even with some of the elite within Israel themselves who had found it better or easier to survive by getting into bed with the politics of Rome than to continue to stand against the politics of Rome. Um, this is what the this is what these writings and teachings of Jesus were doing. We're confronting these power structures. What happens when we remove that piece from understanding or interpreting Scripture is we start to imagine Jesus being the powerful one like Caesar in this setting. We imagine the people that Jesus is talking to to be the privileged and the people with authority and power in their communities. And what that ends up being a lens by which we then uh, misinterpret, misapply, uh, misengage the scriptures. All right, so let me pause there and see if you guys have any thoughts or questions about that. Brings up a lot of questions, but I think I'm interested to see where where this fundamental view takes us. Yeah, I mean, I I hear what you're saying, but I don't I don't know if I fully realize the impact of what it means. Yeah, I I, I certainly when I began kind of questioning uh, was the context of first century Israel the same as my context, and obviously the answer was no. Of course, it couldn't be when I started to find, realize the implications of power that I had that was in existence first century, um, oftentimes uh, a lot of the stories or the parables Jesus was telling or just his teachings in general, even then followed up by Paul then confronting Gentiles who held the power in a lot of instances and talking to them, all of a sudden this began to 
uh, turn or flip the narrative around and it became something more impactful. Let me give you an example. So last week we talked about the cycle. Well, for, I guess first of all, let me see. Is there anyone else that has a thought or question? And so you, we talk about the shift from you know Jesus' time to kind of now. Right. How much of the shift from, say, like David to Jesus? A lot. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of shift there as well. And so we're also going to need to take into account what was uh, Israel's stature in the community when certain things were written. Uh, I mean, even a lot of the writings are uh, like prophets and such. Uh, many scholars even believe part of Genesis narrative was written while they were in Babylonian exile. Um, and so here you are an exiled people, conquered people, and the way you imagine creation, the way you imagine the creation narrative is very different. Uh, which is why Genesis 1 and 2, many scholars argue, are, are drastically different in their telling. Uh, so then even within King David's time, the uh, imagination and the storytelling and the scripture of that time is going to be uh, different as Israel is beginning to know power and beginning to know uh, empire in some small fashion. But is that what you were going Yeah, to I was, I guess I, I always kind of like looked at that, the difference between like how we reread the scriptures now as a Western culture and whatnot, but I didn't, I guess I never really thought too much about what Jesus, I guess I did to some degree, but like the difference in that time. Yeah. Frame. Well, you'll see it a lot with Paul, the way Paul interprets yeah. passages are a flip onto the way they've been interpreted up until right around the time of Paul. I mean, Daniel seven in first century Israel was considered to be one of the uh, major messianic passages, right? But up until the first century, Daniel 7 was a relatively obscure, not obscure, but unknown or unthought of passage. But as Israel became um, more and more at the hands of Rome, Daniel 7 resonated with the people and they began to interpret Daniel 7 differently than it had ever been interpreted before. So it's actually, for me, that's a lot of fun. I love that stuff. I, I totally get into it and geek out a little bit. And that doesn't always make for a good conversation. <laughs> I don't. Uh, but if you like that stuff, you and I could have some really great and fun conversations about it too. So, um, any other questions or thoughts? All right. So an example that I would say of how we have some shifts is when we read the story in Matthew, Mark, and it's also in Luke. It's just not in John. You guys all realize John has zero parables. There are no parables in the in the Gospel of John. Um, and so uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the parable of the sower is in there. And I don't know about you guys, and many of you may have heard me talk about this before, but I grew up being taught that the parable of the sower was about evangelism and about that uh, we throw our seed out and it's the word of God and some people are going to be receptive to it and other people aren't. Well, that's from us from a position of power that we imagine that we're the great farmers uh, and we are the sowers. Uh, but the text seems to imply that so is God, the, the seed is the word, and the field is us. And Jesus is specifically, I would argue, speaking to disciples. And he's saying, what kind of disciple are you going to be? Are you going to be a disciple that is hard soil or rocky? Are you, a, are you the type of soil that's going to have weeds and be distracted? Are you the type of disciple that, uh, you know, the, the soil is shallow and it takes root quickly, but then it, it goes away? Are you the type of disciple that has a rich field that has been plowed and taken care of? Um, and this is a way that I think that the power struggle flips because when we imagine it from our lens, uh, in Western culture as those of us in a position of 
power in some way. I, I know we don't necessarily think of it that way often when we're reading, but that's our reality. We view this passage about being about other people. In fact, we often read the text about other people as opposed to it being about us as believers in the faithful. And so here the story of the, the sower is about what kind of disciple are you going to be? Jesus is really challenging his, his students here at this point, or his disciples, by saying, um, it's up to you. I mean, are, are you, how, what's your commitment? What's your participation? What is your field, like, uh, which causes introspection? So that might be one example. Uh, the parables are going to be huge. When we talk about parables, we're going to see the parables often is completely flipped upside down when we approach it from a group of people. So, um, let me ask this question. What do you imagine then, if the Bible is written to an oppressed people, a marginalized people, uh, and it's a story of how they can overcome or persevere in their, that setting, um, what do you imagine uh, how can we read it? What is the value of it for us today, since we are the people in power? Yeah, I think it inspires social justice. Okay. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> yep. Anything else? I think it causes me to think that I need to look at how I am using or interacting with those that I would have a, a social power over mm. <clears throat> and make sure that I'm acting in a just way with that power and not um, not using it as an oppression but use it as a um, you know an opportunity for liberty and freedom awesome I, I hope that that's true for all of us. I think it, it taking off of what David said too, I think it really, one of the things um, it's done for me is really changed my view of what oppression is and who is oppressed and how I, um, you know, how I approach that. But um, it's changed that definition for me, really opened my eyes to use the press. Yeah, good. Anybody else? I think going in that direction, it'll help me question what is given as more of a privilege um, that somebody else might not have and recognize it, what like, you talked about. What, what is my responsibility with recognizing how I, how I could be unknowingly oppressing people just because it's been handed to me, like the slip has been handed to me or brought to me um, without discussing those consequences. Yeah. I, I almost feel like and I don't know what made me think of this recently, maybe that there's a video of a woman who is talking about being somewhere, I think a grocery store with her sister, and her sister is also mixed race, but her sister appears white, and she appears black, and, and, her, and she's being treated poorly, and her sister stands up for her. And I almost feel like there's not a lot of middle ground 
you either are part of the oppression or you're an advocate. There's not, if you're doing nothing, and, and, and not saying you have to go out and do things, but if you are not opening your mouth for the oppressed, you're part of the problem. I, I feel like there's not, there's not really a neutrality. Yeah, I agree. You're always doing something. That's right, you're always doing something. <laughs> um. I hope what happens as we kind of go through the text and we start viewing the text through this lens and start using that as kind of part of our hermeneutic for reading scripture and part of our, our method of applying it in our life, that we're actually going to see that there are some pretty beautiful and rich ways to actually engage social justice that the scriptures teach us and show us uh, and cause to think about and, and be considering. So I'm really excited about the fact that this doesn't just cause us to take a step back and reflect. This is also going to call us and give us some guidance to what are healthy ways that we can listen, what are healthy ways we can engage, and what are healthy ways that we can speak into situations. So any other thoughts or questions? Anything online, folks? All right. Um, okay, so one of the big things with ancient Israel versus modern Western Christianity, again, I realize everything I'm saying are in huge blanket statements. Forgive that. Uh, that's going to be a probably an every Sunday type thing because we just don't have time to do a seminary course on everything that we're talking about. Um, but within... Within ancient Israel, there was a different perspective on the value and the meaning of faithfulness. Within ancient Israel, there was a sense of that if you do all the things that I've commanded you, there will be no chaos and poverty amongst you. If you live in the way that I've called you to live, you will experience a fullness of life like none other. Then there's a concept that when the day of judgment arrives, that that is the day or that is the time that God is going to reach into his creation or God's creation and set everything right. Okay. That is, that is very uh, different than my experience in the church. And I hope that maybe I'm just an anomaly and you guys haven't experienced something different than that. But for me, my experience growing up in the church was, uh, being about a Christian is is really about all the things you can't do and shouldn't do, and all the things that uh, you know. So it creates guilt and shame. Uh, and don't get me wrong; I am certain within Jewish households, ancient and modern, there is guilt and shame. And uh, so, I'm not trying to to paint this picture that ancient Judaism was perfect because, well, we're humans and we're engaged. But the heart of it, the teaching of it, was about a fullness of life. That's what we hear the rich young ruler say to Jesus. How do I live, have a fullness of life? Right? Unfortunately, our text decides to translate that, how can I have eternal life? And I would argue that in a Jewish setting, they would not have been asking that question to Jesus. They would have been asking, how can I have a fulfilled life? Right? Um, and the reason that we translate eternal to eternal, or that word uh, aeon to eternal versus full, is because we begin with the presumption that the idea of eternity existed within first century theology. Um, but really what aeon means, or eon there means, is 
a time unseen. So it's kind of like saying I was at the grocery store and I waited in line forever. Nobody in our midst would actually think that you are still waiting in that line and that you will be there for eternity. We realize that that is a turn of phrase for saying that an extraordinary long time, a time longer than you imagine. And so this is the same thing. So something greater than you imagine, something bigger than you had thought. And so this person is asking, how can I live this fulfilled life, this life that's bigger than I can imagine, this life that's bigger and richer than I know. Um, and so this is, this is part of the concept of Jewish thought uh, that we miss, because ours tends to be about rule following, which is ironic because most people have been raised in the church. Imagine that ancient Jews were legalistic and that they thought that the Torah was what saved them and that the Torah and that they were all about rule following. Um, as opposed to, I don't know about you guys, but I grew up in a very good rule-following church. There was all kinds of things I was allowed to do and not allowed to do um, in the freedom of Christ, right? Um, and then the other thing is, is I, I grew up fearing Judgment Day. I grew up fearing when God returns, when God sets up God's throne on earth. I, I grew up fearing that. Uh, and thinking about this being a time when people got their just desserts, right? Um, and instead, uh, Israel had this picture of this was the moment when God kind of intersects creation again and, and reimagines it, reapplies it, uh, retells the story, retells our story. Um, there is brokenness in each of our lives that was of no fault of our own. Um, and... God will, in some way, retell our story and set things right for us. To me, that makes me so hopeful for the Day of Judgment. That makes me so hopeful for the moment. Because, see, I would argue that in the garden, right, which we'll talk about a little bit next week, um, we stole the role of judge from God, and that's what went wrong in the garden. And then the Bible, the entire Bible... The entire Bible is us trying to hold on to the role of judge from God, God giving us core to say, no, let me tell you a better way to live, than Jesus uh, trying to bring back or take back the role of judge, and then ultimately ends in this culmination in the book of Revelation when God returns as the true and righteous judge. Right? Uh, when we judge, we do poorly. Right? When we judge, we decide that we're naked and we should be ashamed. That's what happens when we judge. And so judge by God is a setting of things to be right. So what do you guys think about that concept, those concepts? Any thoughts? And the Please. first thing you were talking about was you, you just covered a lot. I did, and I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's, because, it's because I want to get to Genesis 1 next week. I know, week, I know. So. <laughs> what you started with was um, like a set of rules, and when you were growing up, feeling like there was uh, you know, a set of rules. And I have to say, and you said maybe your experience is different, but I didn't grow up in the church. So for me, at 22, my first experiences with church were large evangelical, <clears throat> non-denominational churches, first in California a little bit, and then mostly here. <clears throat> and I have to say, from my perspective as an adult, a young adult, um, I feel like they kind of got that part right. I felt, um, and the music I was listening to at the time, like um, when I first started encountering Christian music, there was this one song, Come as you are, don't change a thing. Open your heart, he'll walk right in. Right. Come as you are, no alibi. It's his love for you will never die. 
<laughs> I was wondering if it would actually turn into you singing. <laughs> <laughs> so close. Right? It was, it was on the verge. It's right there. So close. Just strength. Um, so I, I really felt like it. I did not. I didn't feel like follow these rules or you're bad. Follow these rules or you're not a real Christian. Or I never felt any of that. Um, really at all in my church experience. But I wonder how my two teenage boys would say they feel. That's fair. Because I feel like um, some of it might have to do with the fact that uh, being a child growing up, parents have to make rules, and a lot of times your default is who you are. What's the biggest part of who you are? You feel like God is. My faith defines who I am, so now I'm going to parent in a way that says, you need to follow these rules, and I say you need to. God says too. Right. Me and God say, you need to follow the rules that I set for you. Right, exactly. So I wonder how much of that, you know, I wonder if my two oldest children, who frankly right now are far from the church that, I, you know, neither one of them stayed going to the church we went to and they could have. They stopped before we left. And I wonder what, because um, we gave them the choice at a certain age. You know, we're not dragging you. Right. You can come, we'd like you to. Right. We're not making you now anymore. So um, I wonder, you know, what they would say to that. It makes me want to ask them. It might be a good question to ask them. Yeah. Would you um, <coughs> or <coughs> expand your thoughts on when Jesus um, gave the keys to the kingdom of heaven? Um, that's here. Uh, and that's, that's to almost judge forgiveness. And um, how, how would you expand some of your thoughts on that? In holding on to the judging portion from the party? Well, first of all, I would say I would want to really just flip that entire teaching upside down because I don't think he was giving it to Peter. And I do understand that you know your background is Catholic, and that's sure. that's a, a very importantly held perspective of uh, apostolic succession and all of that stuff. Um, and so, for me, I don't have that history, and so for me, I'm not quite as connected to it. Um, I would say what was going on there was that Jesus decided that he wanted to take them on an 18-mile hike to go stand in front of Caesarea Philippi to ask them one question: Who do you say that I am? Uh, and we miss the fact that it, why, why does the author tell Caesarea Philippi and why there and why 18 miles from Israel, from Jerusalem to go have this one conversation uh, for one question. But then we realize that the gates of hell are in Caesarea Philippi and you can still visit them today. Uh, and that it was a giant rock that on the side of the rock had carvings of all the pagan gods in, in it. Uh, and that this was the gate of Hades, and Jesus stands there and says, uh, the, the church is going to be built upon this rock, um, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it, um, is a very powerful thing that, in my opinion, begins to change that uh, passage differently than the way that we've, we've taught it. Um, because we've, we've missed the fact that uh, Caesarea Philippi actually has a gates of hell, uh, that, that you can go and take a picture of. Um, and we just imagine this all as kind of like this, this spiritual thing, discussion that Jesus is happening, as opposed, and I think it was, but it was a both and. It was also a very physical moment that um, Jesus had his disciples learning with their feet, uh, learning with their eyes, le learning with tangibleness of the reality in front of them. 
which ends up being a significant piece. So uh, we could do an entire sermon on mm -hmm. that section. So I, for me, it's not, I don't think, I don't think I end up the same place just because I begin with the physicalness of Caesarea Philippi, as opposed to that being more of just a spiritual conversation. Does that make sense? I'm not saying that, I'm not trying to imply if I did, mm -hmm. that you're only viewing it as a spiritual discussion, but there was a great physicality there that we often miss because we're not familiar with the landscape or uh, archaeology. It was a total non-answer what I just gave you by saying, <laughs> I just don't, I don't read that passage this right. So Right. And today I read it just as forgiveness. I, I think that's, there's, there's only one authority given to us is, is to forgive. Absolutely. And I, I don't see it as a, a power structure anymore. I just don't right. I, can't. I think that that's a fair... I think that that's fair. I don't know if I necessarily get that just from that passage, right. but I think it's a biblical concept that you're saying. So, yeah, I'm with you. All right. Any other questions or thoughts on that? Did you have something? Oh, I was I was thinking about like the rules that you were talking about and questioning rules, and um, just the idea like with rules, and I feel like it's been done throughout time when you have a rule sometimes you create an extra barrier in that rule that you need as a person like I don't know this is probably a horrible example like if I'm tempted to go get ice cream every day and I can't afford it I might create the barrier instead of being allowed on that block I will drive around it right and so that could potentially if you don't recognize it that's a barrier you put for your Self, right. that could potentially be passed down Correct. to my child who yes. will not understand the barriers in the heart of why and then possibly feel all sorts of negative emotions with that. And then realize that they can drive on that block without any negative consequences and then throw away every other rule you gave them. Right. I think that happens a lot. Our young people, they graduate high school, they go off to college, and they're introduced to uh, biology and evolutionary biology, and they go, this doesn't necessarily actually conflict at all with what I was being taught about uh, God and faith, And but I was told that it was evil and wicked, and uh, when I realized that it's not necessarily evil and wicked, I'm only throwing necessary in there to give room that there might be some people that use it wickedly, I don't know. Um, that then all of a sudden it becomes, well then, I'm going to reject everything else I've ever learned. Uh, so if I was lied to about this, then I was probably lied to about Jesus, and I was probably lied to about God, and I was probably lied to, and it becomes this domino effect that uh, that can be really dangerous. And the rabbis talk about this all the time. It's, it's this idea of putting a hedge around Torah, right? And they say, you know, we put hedges around Torah, which we'll talk about again next week, um, but we put hedges around Torah that eventually get so tall because we keep adding a new rule, a new rule, a new rule, a new rule, that eventually it collapses and it destroys the very thing it was meant to protect. Which it would go back to what you were saying, Diana, if a child then goes on that block and doesn't have a negative consequence uh, for that in, in life, maybe from you, but not in life, then they go, oh, well then this is, I can just have ice cream every day. I, yeah, I don't know. That's the greatest. Piece. I, no, that that could be an analogy I gave, and um, 
very important it's something we'll talk about a lot uh, throughout the many years that you're stuck here uh, <laughs> consider this the purgatory of churches um, but uh, that, that we can't confuse descriptive with prescriptive and we do it all the time with things we describe something in our life like I can't go within a block of that ice cream shop because I'm diabetic and I know I'll eat there that's descriptive for you our problem and our danger is, is that we quickly make that prescriptive for everyone else. We assume that that's a good rule for everyone else to follow, and it becomes prescriptive. And I'd say in a lot of ways, that's the danger that the church is faced with. I often hear say people say, oh, well, that's orthodoxy, right? And they took a descriptive moment in the church history, and they've made it prescriptive for everyone all the time. It's how we have done much of life and we should we should challenge things and we should learn to ask good questions to get to the root is this a descriptive moment you're sharing with me or is this genuinely a prescriptive moment and I think we would find relatively quickly that there are way fewer prescriptive moments than there are descriptive moments Does that make sense yeah please I um I, I read an author uh, a couple years ago just some a couple of short articles by him and um, he talked about guardrails, mm -hmm. like to stay on his straight and narrow. Right. Mm -hmm. He put up guardrails, and that makes me think of that. Like, it, it, um, you for yourself know what's too far, and you choose if if you have somebody to hold you accountable. Yep. And then you, these are your guardrails, yep. and you don't want to go past them. Yep. I I've used a similar analogy. Um, uh, bumper rails on a bowling alley. Yeah. Because those can go up or down depending on who's bowling. Right. right? And so, oh, yeah. like, you know, you can put up the bumper rails if you need them. 
and you can put them down if you don't feed them. And it gives us that. And I think it's different for everyone. Correct. And so I think we need to have that. And that's that's where community, and we talked about uh, either last week or a couple weeks ago, the idea of interdependency. And that's where that comes from is, is other people can actually even be a part of our boundaries and help us with those boundaries because we either share a common boundary. And so we say, all right, you know, we lock arms together in this setting. But then other people who those boundaries aren't uh, necessary for or aren't aren't a part of their their way of being at that moment um, might be able to participate in something that you can't and bring something of value back to you. Like they can go to the ice cream store and bring you a Diet Coke. I don't know what a diabetic would get from a ice cream shop. Okay, Penguin Palace has hot dogs. There you go, hot dogs. <laughs> so. Uh, so that's where the interdependency also comes into is that there's other people that can safely navigate terrain that you and I can't, right? And and that's good. That's beautiful. And that's where we become uh, a community is in those settings. All right. I just um, please. Uh, David helped me realize something. It's almost like an epiphany. I, I never thought of it, but asking the better question when I hold a Bible study, say at St. John's Catholic Church, um, there's more complaining about. It's not questions. Mm. Here we're, we're asking questions. And something that that helps me fall in love with God is just the awe of it, <clears throat> the mystery of it. And I think asking questions helps respect the mystery of God. And because I cannot define or her or it. Um, it's just too big and too vast. So which leads to another question. How does one properly evangelize if um, in today's standard it seems like you have to have all the answers but I would I would beg to say that it's better to just so that just I, I feel starry-eyed <laughs> and uh, when I think about them and I, I just can't help but gush uh, but I don't have all the answers um, so I think asking the better question has helped me respect more of the mystery I don't think man should define God that's just too much. And I'm, I'm just tired of the seven steps to evangelization, yeah. having all the right answers, converting people. It, it seems that we're using God as a commodity instead of some creator. Yeah. Mm -hmm. one, of the, one of the passages in recent years that has really impacted me is when it comes to thinking about evangelism particularly is uh, Jesus is teaching, he says, beware of false teachers, right? And in that warning, he says, you will know them by their fruit. And in ancient Israel, someone's fruit was their uh, actions, their behaviors, the way that they physically lived, right? Jesus doesn't say you'll know a false teacher by their poor exegesis or their poor hermeneutics or their uh, poor answers or whatever it might be. But rather, we will know a false teacher by looking at their life looking at the way they live, looking at the way that they treat their neighbor, looking at the way that they interact in their community. That's how you'll know a false teacher. And I, man, that is, like I can get up front and I can teach perfectly sound doctrine and theology that any right-minded Christian isn't going to argue with me about, right? But if my life is in, is, does not reflect that, then I, I qualify as a false teacher uh, in, in the eyes of Jesus. I might get up front. This is beautiful. Thank you. Uh, 
Would you like to sit up there next to it? Okay, I'll do it next week, all right? Thank you. Ruby has been giving us artwork every week that we display on our table then uh, each week. So I already have next week's piece. Um, so I think that for me, I could get up front and I might teach you guys something or tell you guys something that in a couple weeks or maybe a couple years, I come back and say, I think I was wrong about that. But that doesn't qualify me as a false teacher if my life is bent towards God and I'm striving to be more and more Christ-like in my life. Um, I'm not a false teacher because I mistakenly taught something. Yes, please. We don't have a lot of room in our society for people to change their minds. We don't. And I have to say this, especially in this political climate that we're in, mm -hmm. there's so much like, they're a flip-flopper. And I think, well, maybe they mature. Sure. Right. Like, maybe they changed their mind. I don't think the same things that I did 10 years right. ago. Right. I I'm thankful for the politician who had one mindset 10 years ago mm -hmm. and has a different one now that is... Um, Better by my standards, you know. <laughs> but, but I mean, or better, or has more fairness, more um, equitable, more loving towards people. And, and and I think that's just a thing in our society. We love to call people hypocrites, like you were talking about a few years ago, uh, a few weeks ago. It might feel you probably said it a couple years ago too. Um, we love to call people hypocrites, and we don't like to give people space to change their mind. Like, once they say it out loud, they can never change their mind again. And if they do, then they were a liar then, or they're a liar now, and we call into question whether we can believe anything they say. And, right. I think I think part of it is because we know our intentions when we do something, right? But we suppose we know someone else's intentions, right? Or we... So we always we always think of ourselves on the more positive, like what our motivation was, right? Um, like I, when I speed, sometimes when I'm actually in a car, I'm like, I can justify it because I know that ninety percent of the time I do not speed, and they have to, and right, but that in this moment, but in this moment, it's it's okay because I'm very aware of my surroundings and there's no kids right now or something like that, whatever it is. I know my intentions, and so I give myself permission to do something. Mm -hmm. But someone else going three miles over the speed limit, five miles over the speed limit, 20 miles, or whatever it might be, I I could care less if they are birthing that child right this second. <laughs> <laughs> right? I, I don't care. Um, that, I was just trying to think of the most extreme situation that I could think of. So, like... But we don't. We don't give, and I think that comes into play then when it comes to giving people permission to change their mind. Because our immediate thing is, if we change our mind, we think, "Oh, I'm enlightened," or "I've matured." Someone else changes their mind. It's, "Oh, well, they're doing that for political reasons only," or uh, "That was convenient time to change your mind." Right. And though that might be true, sometimes we apply it all the time. Mm -hmm. I think, particularly though, in faith with faith. Um, most people have been taught that, you know, God's word is never changing, and it is, like, this is, you know, there's that whole, like, you know, God said it, it's not going to be there. Yeah, like, and so to say, like, that you, you know, read more and now you want to 
understand the context better and so that you have a different interpretation is like, uh, no, there aren't many interpretations. There is, that is it. This right. is the Bible, and you know. Well, and that goes back to what we were talking about earlier, like with, between David and Paul. Even between David and Paul, the idea of scripture had evolved, right? What a horrible term to use in talking about the Bible, right? But the Bible had evolved. The way of interpreting the Bible had evolved. Paul interprets passages completely different than anyone prior to him. And no one even flinches, right? Even his skeptics or even the people challenging Jesus when Jesus interprets a passage differently than they have heard before, their only question is, how does he teach with authority, right? Their, their thought isn't how dare him teach something different. It's this man seems to speak with authority. And where, is he, where does he get that authority to, to teach this differently? So like we, we kind of are left to a single interpretation of the Bible. And Walter Brueggemann said, and I might have said it before, uh, he says a single interpretation leads to a single solution. And last time we did a single solution, a lot of Jewish people died. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I think that that's that's something for us to keep in mind that uh, that there is room to reimagine, change our mind, ask questions, to be wrong. Like one of the things that I want in a church setting, even as the pastor, maybe even more importantly as the pastor, I want the ability to be wrong. Like I I crave that so much. Uh, my first experience in ministry was if you're up front, you stick by your guns until until you're done, right? Like, you don't want to show anything other than you know exactly what you're talking about, right? And I want the ability to be wrong as the pastor. Um, and I want it to be safe to come back the next week and say, I really thought about some of the pushback that was giving me, or I read something else, and I, I think I need to change my view on this. Um, I want that, and therefore, if I want it, I hope that that's something you guys all feel safe and encouraged. In. All right, any other thoughts or questions? Uh, we kind of hit like five topics there at once. Um, we safe flying. Too far, uh, with safe, changing minds. a safe place to change your mind. So uh, you're I'm out saying of here. it because you said we can tell you that you're wrong. <laughs> if you guys did hear that, uh, if you want the list all at once. <laughs> <laughs> they decided here to the only reason of staying at the church is something wrong. All right. Uh, good. I was just thinking what we were talking about going back to like the rules. I almost wonder how many of the rules are made just because really neat. And if oh, sure. something's really messy, it's almost like at least where I I've experienced this growing up is if things are messy, you're doing something wrong. You're not following the rules, and I I don't. Like, I feel like. Rules are like supposed to guide you, not keep things neat. Like it's going to be messy, and it's yeah. actually good to be messy. Thinking about things. That's why I want to encourage the parents in this group of, of children that their child is not going to bother me. And if I lose my train of thought because of noise or because of movement, that's okay. And it's not because. Uh, I think it's more important that we sit together and they get to see and experience adults 
experiencing something, an expression of faithfulness, an expression of community and relationship, way more than any one or two sentences that come out of my mouth. Um, but that's messy. And that can create some complicated moments. And I even understand it can stress out parents. Uh, that and Or dog owners. Or dog owners. <laughs> <laughs> I draw the line at the dogs. Do not bring your pets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so We're about to be chicken friendly in a moment. <laughs> All right, so we only have a minute or two left. Um, so I want to let me go back to the setting up the hedges of Torah piece that uh, you know that you brought up, particularly Diana. Um, there's a passage in the Gospels where Jesus is with his apostles, and the Pharisees come up, and they're in a marketplace, and they're eating. And the Pharisees walk up and they say to Jesus, uh, why are your disciples not washing their hands? Right? And Jesus says to, the, to the, uh, the questioners, how dare you put a law of man above a law of God? What Jesus is implying there is that the law of God says that the food that the disciples are eating are clean and therefore able to be eaten. And what the religious people were arguing with Jesus about was the fact that by not washing their hands, this is not just, you know, this ritual purity stuff, not hygiene, okay? Uh, they were not concerned that they did not wash their hands before returning to work. Uh, this was about ritual purity. And Jesus pushes back and says, you can't say that a law or an idea by man to wash your hands in ritual purity before you eat can override the fact that God declared the food to be clean. Right? And then, parenthetically, that passage says, and therefore Jesus declared all food to be clean, and all Gentiles celebrated and said, Bacon! <laughs> right? um, when that is not actually the point Jesus is making, though I, it's okay that you're eating bacon. Uh, the point Jesus is making is that the food, which would have only been considered food, like, you know, I don't think any of you look at my puggle and think food, Spawn of Satan, maybe, but not. <laughs> uh, so when Jesus says, it says, when Jesus therefore declared all foods to be clean, the point is, is that a man-made law or a hedge, uh, avoiding the block that the ice cream parlor is on, is not the same thing as the food becoming ice cream. Uh, and he goes on and uses another example. But those are really important things that uh, oftentimes we can confuse the man-made laws with being actually higher than God's laws. And I'm really hoping part of what we do in our journey as a church is we kind of maybe can break down some of those laws that maybe each of us have experienced or those rules that each of us have experienced that are not biblical, that are not uh, just completely anchored in Scripture, but maybe were rules put in place by a well-meaning individual or not uh, in order to protect us from doing uh, something that's unhealthy or robs from us the fullness of life that God has in mind. And so I hope as we're going through Genesis and Exodus and all of those that we will start to see some of those things and start to be able to uh, actually experience more and more freedom in our own faith uh, that we can kind of celebrate where we are and where we're moving as opposed to how far yet we have to go. Uh, because that can sometimes overwhelming so I wonder if the, the, the seeds of oppression lie in the misunderstanding 
between descriptive and prescriptive? I, I would say wow. that's where that's where they get watered if nothing else. <laughs> right? Um, yeah, I absolutely. 100%. All right. Any anybody have any questions or thoughts? Our absolutely silent online community. I apologize if I did not do a good enough job of bringing you into the conversation. Um, next week, we will be doing Genesis 1, 1 through Genesis 6, 4. Okay? Uh, so read that, write down questions, think about it. Um, I, I really want to encourage everyone. We'll send out an email uh, that has that listed on it. But I really encourage everyone to try and at least read through it once, if not a couple times. Uh, listen to it. You can, I think on Bible Gateway, you can just listen to the passages uh, read to you in your favorite translation. Do that. But uh, try and see if you can make it a part of your week this week. Uh, and so that way next week, uh, when we're talking about it, uh, you already have some foundation of the passage. All right. I'm going to stop reading.